Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and welcome to another of our episodes uh, that we do in conjunction with the journal Advances in Simulation. And this time we're going to be doing an article with a friend of ours, uh, Susan Eller, who's the first author in a paper that's titled Leading Change in Practice, How Longitudinal Pre-Briefing Nurtures and Sustains in Situ Simulation Programs. Now, we're going to talk about the article, we're going to talk about the writing of it and what it might mean for our own simulation programs. Uh, but first of all, a couple of introductions. Uh, Susan Eller is the Associate Dean for Immersive Learning and Learning Spaces at the Centre for Immersive and Simulation-Based Learning at Stanford, that's in California. She's a long-time friend of Simulcast. She's been on the show before. She's helped me do con- deconstructions of the CSAM conference. Uh, she's just defended her PhD dissertation. Uh, she's also famous for her SSH knowledge map and is on the research committees for the Society for Simulation and Healthcare uh, in the US and CSAM, the European Sim Society. Susan, how are you? Very good to see you. Thanks, Vic and Ben, for having me. Yes, well, it's lovely to have you on the show again. And uh, Susan has let on that I'm also joined by the inimitable Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? Mate, I am good and I am buzzing because I am a Susan Ellis super fan and I am so excited to be in the same podcasting virtual room to get to hear from her and hear her wisdom. Oh, that's a, um, that's a, that's a pretty big club you're joining, the Susan Ellis super fans. But, of which uh, I am the treasurer. <laughs> All right, well, more on the joining that club later, listeners. But let's get into this paper. And before we do that, though, I will just make mention this uh, paper is published in Advances in Simulation. Uh, as our simulcast listeners would know, we uh, have a collaboration with Advances, which is an open access simulation journal. Uh, Gabe Reedy is the editor-in-chief, and we pick out some papers from time to time, and we like to do a deep dive on the paper and the people behind it. So as I said, this paper is about longitudinal pre-briefing. This is the terminology of the authors. Uh, How do we actually enable the change management process that we need to do in order for in-situ simulation programs to be established and indeed to thrive? So this paper was published uh, in Advances in Simulation just earlier this year. The uh, first author, as we said, is Susan Eller, and she was joined by Jenny Rudolph, Stephanie Barwick, Sarah Janssens, and Komal Bajaj, also all friends of Simulcast and have been on the show uh, in various manifestations. And uh, this paper goes through some of the challenges that there are about uh, starting up and sustaining in-situ simulation programs. Uh, Think about a framework for how to uh, support that and draw on the Cotter change management uh, theory in order to think about this in a systematic way. So as we get into the detail of that, maybe we can think a little bit about in situ simulation first. What is it? Why do we do it? What are the challenges? Uh, and uh, maybe, Susan, you can sort of give us a sort of starting point there. Uh, it sounds like it's a hard thing to do. So why should we even be doing it? 
Well, thanks, Vic. Um, I think one of the things we talked about is having the, and, and sorry, I'm going to say in situ instead of in situ, I'm from the Midwest, um, <laughs> simulation, is having the simulation that's done in the actual clinical setting with all the real um, props and people and kind of clinical context that you would normally have, as opposed to doing it in the simulation center. And we do it for a variety of reasons. Um, sometimes it's uh, expediency. So it's easier to get access to the team members when you're actually on the unit. Sometimes it's you want to do system or quality testing and you're trying to implement some new sepsis protocol or um, other types of training. I think there's a lot of reasons why we do it in the clinical setting. Mm, Great. So it sort of uh, can add to authenticity, but it gives us a bit of an expanded scope of what our goals might be for the sim. So yes, it might be educational, but we might also be systems probing. Uh, ben, you've done a little bit of this yourself. Anything else that you would add in the reasons why to do in situ sim before we get into the reasons why not to? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, from what uh, Susan and you've been describing, is it's interesting how insight you now sits in sort of a messy metatextual space between the educational, the translational, um, and having both roles in diagnostic and interventional simulation. And so sometimes we actually have to pick and prioritize those. But I think we also sometimes have the challenge where if we want a long-term program to thrive, we actually have to embrace all of those roles at different times within that service to make sure that it thrives and meets a number of different needs. Mm, that's so important, isn't it? And I think that's one of the things we're going to come back to as one of the ways to nurture and sustain these programs is to have clarity of purpose, uh, whether that's for the program as a whole or indeed for elements of it, which, as you say, might be differently applied in different parts of a program. All right. Well, given that this sounds like a pretty good thing to do for a variety of reasons, uh, now, Susan, in the paper, you say that uh, all of the programs that the authors were involved with had met with uh, reluctance, fear and outright refusal. Uh, And I think that's something that anyone else involved in uh, ISS or in situ or in situ, however you choose to say it, uh, would find. And also there's sort of questions. This takes up a lot of resources. And some of our healthcare leadership are saying, really, you're going to have 30 people at that trauma sim? Shouldn't they be off doing some real work? Uh, Do you want to tell us more about the barriers uh, as you... um, thought about them uh, more generally and then as your team thought about them? Well, I think you've done a good job of labeling some of them. I think that refusal um, to participate in SIM was one of the biggest ones that I encountered in my own setting um, and especially from the nurses. And I'm a nurse myself. And so, you know, you had this really interesting mix of physicians and, you know, uh, other professions that had been used to doing SIM and were very comfortable with it. And you had nurses who were um, kind of scared of it and had been traumatized by certain things in the past. And so had a reluctance to participate. You brought up um, very nicely that there's, you know, administrators that say, okay, you're taking people time away from, you know, patient care. Why is it worth it? Um, you're using a lot of resources. You're opening up my equipment. You know, there's a cost involved and in what's in it for me. What are we gaining from this? So I think all of those were the kind of big picture items that we kind of all encountered. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple I would add in there is, uh, you know, and also based on personal experience, there are safety risks as well, risks to the system integrity, risks to the real patients, risks of not taking equipment back to where they should be. Uh, and that's well uh, publicized and discussed in the healthcare simulation community. 
All right, so the paper then goes on to suggest that maybe pre-briefing is the answer to this, but a different kind of pre-briefing. So we've been talking about pre-briefing often uh, on this podcast and in other situations about this short episode that we have just before we go into a sim where we miraculously establish uh, psychological safety and do various things that help gain rapport with our group. Uh, and a really important thing to do before a simulation activity, and I think uh, most people are on board with that, has to be done carefully and thoughtfully. But really your team are saying, we need to extend this. There's much more that we need to do to prepare our institutions, our teams, our participants, and indeed the people around our simulation for success here. Uh, and a little bit of self-indulgent here, I believe this whole thing started by a simulcast uh, journal club back in 2019, which led uh, to a robust discussion and collaboration between the authors uh, representing the three programs. And I will name them, uh, MARTA in Brisbane, uh, New York Hospitals and Healthcare, and a neonatal intensive care unit in the Midwest, where they would say in situ. So uh, tell us more, Susan, about this kind of conversation that you had that then led to uh, even thinking about writing this article. Sure. And I will give a, a, a shameless plug for a simulcast and for the journal club that bended because it created this lovely community of practice where we really did start this robust discussion. And it was interestingly enough, because I um, was thinking during this conversation about all the work that I had to do um, in some ways in my brain, it was kind of to undo the damage that, you know, in order to get the nurses to participate or in order to get the residents to participate. And so having this conversation on the journal club actually started, you know, this conversation between uh, the, the three different groups to say, oh, wait, I had to do some of the similar things in my situation. And, you know, it was like, maybe there's something there. Maybe there's something that we need to explore this more and to discover this thing that I thought I was just doing to um, increase participation and alleviate anxiety seems like something that other places were doing in order to establish and sustain their program too. So it may not just be this one-off thing that I thought it was, and maybe we should explore that more deeply. Mm, how interesting. Well, Ben, you've got to feel a little bit like a proud dad of the Simulcast uh, Journal Club if it's leading to these kind of academic discussions and collaborations. Uh, thoughts on that? Well, I was always grateful to all of those authors for coming and just joining in because, as you, as you well know, a lot of the work of Journal Club was just desperately pleading for people to comment. Uh, so it was so wonderful to have discussion at that level from such a variety of simulation centers around the world. And it was always uh, one of the biggest privileges of my professional life. So very grateful. Oh, very good. And, and look, I think it's fair to say we should give a nod to this. this isn't the first time people have thought of the notion of how do we integrate uh, in situ simulation within healthcare services. And I think this conversation isn't entirely new, but I like the lens that this has brought to it and also the familiarity with the idea of pre-briefing and then saying that it's an extended one. So we'll dig into that uh, shortly. But before we do this, one of the more interesting things about this paper, Susan, is in the sort of methods and the process. And there's some, I would really encourage people to read it because some very carefully chosen words here about how you described what you did so that we could see that it was both rigorous, uh, personal, narrative, uh, but really very pragmatic and useful. So each site wrote a narrative 
about how Institusim was implemented uh, in their own institution. And then you did an analysis of these narratives thematically um, and just inductively, which means you didn't start with any particularly preformed ideas, and you looked at each other's. Uh, it wasn't just looking at your own. Uh, and then these themes you decided to compare with Cotter's uh, eight steps in their change management theory. So I thought this was a lovely in-depth discussion. Um, can you sort of just add a little more to that for us? Was that something that was easy to arrive at, or did you toss around your uh, method or methodology for this I think it was really important that, like you said, it was very inductively done. And so we tried to, um, you know, first write the narratives and then we did um, like thematic analysis. And we, again, this is, you know, part of the rigor of being a PhD student. I thought, oh, we must do something that's, you know, got some steps to it in a way that we could recognize. Um, I think we did that and we did comparative analysis with each other. So it's like I wasn't just looking at my own program. I was looking at the other two programs and saying, how are they similar and how are they different? And obviously way more um, uh, things came up that were similar, of course. And I think it's at that point in time that we uh, we invited Jenny Rudolph in to join us to like kind of have give us some perspective and to have somebody from the outside. So it wasn't just a the three insider groups looking at everything just from the inside, but they were taking a, a perspective from the outside as well. Mm, and that's a really nice description of those perspectives. In fact, we were just talking about them last night and how both insiders and outsiders in research can have really valid contributions, but they will be different ones. So you've uh, joined those two together. And I guess just for listeners at this point, uh, I think it's really helpful to think about Cotter's eight steps, and that goes back to the Harvard Business Review article 2007, uh, why transformation efforts fail. And this is really one of the seminal papers in the business literature about change management. And it goes through the steps of establishing a sense of urgency, forming powerful guiding coalitions, creating the vision, communicating that vision, um, empowering others to act, uh, recognizing the small wins and then consolidating those improvements and then really institutionalizing the new approaches. So I do think if people wanted to read something other than the primary paper here, it's always worth going back to that. Cotter, because I think it's helped me over the years to really uh, recognize where things have gone wrong for me and occasionally where things have gone right as well. <clears throat> uh, how did you decide on that one, Susan? Well, this is where, you know, I'll um, ask my uh, fellow authors indulgence because I'll, you know, it's like give a little bit, pull, pull the curtain back a little bit. We had gone through this thematic analysis process and we had named all the themes and I think we described themes in the paper. And at some point in time, I think we all looked at each other and we said, you know what, these things seem really similar to Cotter. And it was kind of like, um, like one of those aha moments. Like, I don't know that we, um, before I set out trying to do this thing at my own institution that I had planned to use Cotter and do this. It's just, I kind of did it and this is what worked. And as you know, the other author groups were describing their journeys, it was the same thing. So I think it was kind of like we had this moment and we actually took a pause and thought, oh, can we go forward and just admit that we didn't realize we were using Cotter before we did it? But now I'll just say we were using Cotter and we did it very successfully. So it was kind of like one of those moments where we realized what was happening. We, we hadn't all done it on purpose. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is a very honest reflection of what happens to a lot of people is, hey, wow, here we go, we made the connections. Uh, and I think that's a really good advertisement for being 
having a sense of other disciplines and fields of endeavor because I think having that appreciation really allows some nice compare and contrast. Uh, ben, it uh, made sense to the non-business academic uh, for you, did it? A hundred percent. And uh, even I was admiring as, as the non-methods guy. <laughs> I was uh, very much in admiration with the very eloquent and specific way that the methods were described, uh, and you could very easily see the care that had been made to get those insider and outsider perspectives and to have a level of discipline in this narrative that wasn't just, look at these three institutions, aren't they great? Yeah, and I think that's the thing. It's not just this is what we do at home. There is that level of rigour, which uh, clearly your PhD training is supporting, but I imagine it was there beforehand. All right, well, let's dive into this, uh, the actual sort of findings and your, I guess they also turn into recommendations at some level. And there's this lovely uh, table one in the article that we'll just sort of skip through. And it, you, the way you set it up is you've got the leadership step of Cotter's and then you've really played it out or described it a bit more detail in the then the next column which is then the change leadership for uh in situ simulation and then you've got particular illustrations and so we'll we will go through them briefly each and uh ben and i might take turns and then every now and again we'll get susan just to, to give us an interesting story or two about it so um the first one uh in the cotter step is establish a sense of urgency and the way that then the uh, in situ sim plays out is identify the pain points and examples of this might be if you suddenly have incident reports of adverse outcomes in a certain area um, using patient stories is a good one or having some new accreditation requirements so uh, this probably is a step that sometimes we neglect Susan we sort of just jump in and assume everyone thinks it's a good idea like us but it also suggests to me that timing might be important here. Yeah. And I think in each of our cases, we found out that there was some driving thing that was the pain point. In ours, it was they weren't uh, adhering to the um, neonatal resuscitation uh, uh, protocols. And so it was like, oh, wait a minute, we're not doing so well at this. Or, you know, I think there was in everybody's case, I think um, our journeys were facilitated because there was a pain point. To be honest, it was like there was some compelling reason that kind of made it easier for us to take that first step into this journey. Yeah, oh, fantastic. All right, Ben, do you want to keep us going? Absolutely. So the second step is uh, form a guiding coalition, uh, and it's described as engaging top-down and bottom-up multi-professional partners to create buy-in and essentially do not work alone. Uh, the examples given are things like using simulation facilitators as well as clinical stakeholders and healthcare leaders to form a working party and to gain representation on relevant hospital committees to garner support across different levels of governance, which seem like very wise words indeed. Yeah, I think we all had to, to um, know which one of the leaders we needed to get into in terms of like, oh, do we need to get like nursing unit-based leadership? Did we need to get quality committees involved? And how did we get the buy-in from those that were on the front line that would be the people who are going to be participating in the simulation? So it was particularly helpful to reach out to the people and say, like, let's talk about this. And that kind of leads you into that creative vision. I hate to step ahead, but it's like, I think one of the things that we learned is what is SIM and what is it not? Uh, Vic alluded to this earlier is like, what is the purpose of this? Is this translational? Is this going to be to identify latent safety threats? Or is this just going to be <laughs> some team training that we're doing? And uh, the thing that I think we all had to figure out was that it's not going to be an assessment of anybody. 
Mm, yeah, so helpful. Well, that does skip us through. In fact, I might do the next two, Ben. So the, the next one is creative vision, just as you said. Uh, so it's one thing to have the right people, but you're saying now let's direct them at the right purpose and co-creating these shared goals, including meeting up with the, with the right people who are in this guiding coalition. Uh, and the other one you use here is use evidence-based examples in the literature, which can be quite um, uh, important. And then the next step, which is closely related to that, is actually communicating the vision. So it's one thing for us to have this brilliant idea about what this sim program's for, but really thinking about branding your program, socialising it is the word we use in a variety of settings, so explaining it huddles or grand rounds, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it. And so actually having essentially a marketing strategy uh, for that as well. And I imagine that would have been something that uh, came more or less easily to some of you. Yeah, I think Acomo's probably got a better at catchy names than I am probably. Um, because I, I, when I was listening to some of the creativity, it was like, oh, that's so good. And so this is one of the other benefits of, of sharing uh, stories with such a esteemed author group is then it's like, oh, that's a great idea. I wish I would have thought of that catchy title. And, you know, I thought of some of the things like the socialization or let's go to the, you know, nursing um, meetings or let's go to the residents, you know, uh, grand rounds or whatever, but it's, it's, you know, it's like, how do you socialize those things and embed them? So it's like you said, communicating this with the groups and making them kind of uh, more accessible, I guess. And it sounds like a lot of thought put into the right message for the particular people that you're speaking to, which is obviously easier said than done. All right, Ben, why don't you take the next two? Absolutely. So the next two are empower others to act on the vision and plan for and create short-term wins. So that includes tips like uh, the goal of energizing the program or re-energizing it for participants by clarifying program logistics and providing approachable opportunities for familiarization, and then identifying and celebrating early adopters and early successes to build momentum. And I'm curious if you've got any tips specifically both about empowering those others to act on the vision, but also whether there's some specific early adopters that the teams found particularly useful. I think almost every one of the team found like some of those early adopters were those people who were very eager to do it. So it was people that had had either good experience or they were super curious about it. Like I've heard about this. I've read about this. Maybe they read Vic's article about, you know, translational sim or, you know, it's like, they had this kind of bug and you wanted to get them on board. And so, um, you know, it's like, how did you get them involved? Whether it was like, let's go to this debriefing course, let's go to the sim thing, you know, why don't you come over and watch us do this? Why don't we come over to your unit and we'll do little scavenger hunts? Like, can you go find where your, uh, you know, postpartum hemorrhage kit is on your floor, you know, so things that were lower stakes. So it was kind of like how to get those early adopters on board and part of the process and really, um, you know, enjoying everything that we were, I wouldn't say enjoying, but really kind of vested in all the stuff that we were doing. Yeah, so important. Uh, and I think, you know, Eve constantly reminds us that groups aren't all the same. There's some special nodes uh, in social networks. And so finding those uh, is probably really important, isn't it? Yeah, and then the next one, which uh, follows again quite nicely, consolidate improvements to produce still more change. 
uh, and I think this is something we don't always do a good job of, ensuring program impacts are visible by closing the loop with multi-professional partners, and not just multi-professional, but also I imagine multi-level. So actually, if people find things in these simulations, communicating to the right people and doing something about them, uh, sharing improvement at staff huddles, having infographics to communicate improvements. So this is, I think, part of that ongoing and iterative communication uh, process. But if this is the sort of uncool work, Susan, like everyone wants to go and do the sim, no one wants to write it up and actually do something about it. Uh, how do we navigate that? Well, I think a couple things. I think uh, one thing is I think, you know, the infographics are helpful or like even just putting on the whiteboard, you know, like at the various, you know, stations or huddles. But I, I have to say there's power in it that I didn't, you know, fully expect. Um, I'll tell a brief story if I may. It's like one of the things that we found is we were doing our um, simulations of shift change because you had more people there. So it was easier to gather the crowd. Right. Um, one of the things we found is the first time we did the simulation, um, you know, we pushed the code button in the neonatal ICU and we had all these residents come in and pharmacists and respiratory therapy and we were missing nurses. And so it's like, where did all the nurses go? And so what they found was the nurses, when they were doing a bedside report, had turned off their phones. And so when this call for the code went out, um, none of the nurses heard the call for the code. And that's why the nurses weren't showing up. Now, what you can think is like, well, thank goodness they never had a code at change of shift before. But this thing that we found, um, you know, the next day the practice was changed and all the nurses had their phones on during change of shift. And it, it may seem like this anecdotal story, but it was really powerful and everybody on that unit knew that story. So it, it was like, yes, it was on the whiteboard and yes, it was in the huddles, but it was also like, hey, we found this thing that actually could have prevented something really bad from happening. So I think there was um, a lot of power in those social um, stories, whether it's being placed on a board, whether it's being put in a flyer and those stories that get told kind of verbally by the people that are in the unit and that it impacts. Yeah, that's a great story. And I can feel in his absence, Peter Diekman smiling because this is exploring the mundane and it's uh, actually understanding everyday work. Uh, and I think the opportunity to do that is exactly why you're doing the uh, in-situ simulation, uh, even if it might not necessarily be what you intended to interrogate in the first instance. Huh? How interesting. Yeah, I was wondering if I could just sit in that a little bit longer because I do think it's worth highlighting this is often the thing that we profess to do a lot in Insight GSIM, i.e. diagnose all these latent safety threats. And I think we're so at risk of identifying them, putting them in an infographic or emailing someone and then nothing changing. And we run the risk of creating the illusion of testing to the point where we're actually maintaining the system staying exactly where it is because we can delude ourselves that we're making a difference when actually we haven't. And so I'm curious if there's any tips, Susan, about how do you negotiate that tension between being the person who diagnoses the problem in a hospital and not ending up owning every problem in the hospital to the point where you rapidly become overwhelmed? Well, I think it's a great point, but I think we've always made a point in, in, you know, any of the institutions that I worked with, it's one of the things that, you know, starts very early on in this process of the longitudinal pre-briefing is you have to explicitly say, if we find something, we're going to report it to somebody who has the power to fix it. However, we don't claim to be the person who has the power to fix it. So in this case, you know, I wasn't the person who could tell the nurses, 
you have to have your phones turned on. But because the nursing leaders kind of saw the sim and they were aware of what was going on, they're like, we have to change this the next day. Um, I've done this in other another institution where we found out that there was, a, again, it's like a small thing, but it was a phone number to the blood bank that was wired wrong. And people were trying to do a massive transfusion protocol and the phone was ringing at a location that didn't matter. And so I think it's, if you really make that commitment, you have to say, okay, I don't want to own this problem, but how do I be um, vocal enough to whoever does own the problem that says, this is a safety threat, this could be an issue for you. And um, as you know, I'm a little persistent and I'm not shy about being vocal. So I just have to say, you know, one of the reasons that we decided to do this program was to make sure that we could uncover some of these safety threats. And we told people we were going to make these changes. And I think it's kind of part of that trust that enables us to now do successive programs within the same institution because they know that we will um, follow up with these things when we find them. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's a great example of engagement. And the other thing I'm thinking, Ben, I'm not sure what you think, but uh, this is a really focused article on engagement and that uh, lens of pre-briefing is a good one for that. I'm sure, well, I don't imagine the authors would think this is a substitute for also thinking about issues of positioning, governance, who you report to. Uh, and I think one of the things I would say about these programs is they're pretty sophisticated and of a decent size. And I do think uh, while the principles are probably there for the smaller uh, one, two, three person operator, even within a department, there might be uh, same principles, but slightly different challenges in exactly what you're talking about, Ben, because I imagine if the nurse educator in a department is doing this with an interested sim person, they are going to be left following up a lot of stuff. And maybe that's not all wrong, but uh, maybe they're in a position to, and they have some responsibilities from that case anyway. I don't know. Thoughts? You asked the question. Have you got an answer for yourself? <laughs> uh, I think I came to an answer in clinical event debriefing, which was that oh, yeah. my job was to synthesize the information, propose potential solutions for consideration, and ensure that that information got to the right person. But then I did have to accept that another part of that role was sending another email in uh, a month's time and closing that loop and saying, has this actually been addressed? I'm not telling you how you're going to address it, but I need to close this on my database and where are you at? And just having that small amount of discipline where I wasn't necessarily owning it, but did have a little bit of a bulldog. But sorry, Susan, you like you had some thoughts as well. Um, I was going to kind of go off what Vic said, but I, I, I'm intrigued by yours too. Is like, I think one of the lessons I've learned throughout this whole process, both in, you know, doing the, the this over and again at different institutions is that one of the questions I ask before I start these insight you programs now is like, who is the person that's going to be? Who is that person with power to change things that is going to be sitting on this committee that's going to be part of this process that's going to help us make these changes because it's like, it's important to get them involved early on as well too, because it's like that way um, I'm not going to be the person owning it. And that way you're more likely to affect the change. Hmm. All right. Well, I think there's lots to think about there. Uh, and in fact, this is a pretty nice segue into the last one, Ben. It is absolutely. So the last point is institutionalized new approaches, in essence, embedding the simulation program within the organizational organizational culture and regular operations and this again i'd have to say is often quite tricky to do well so what are your tips susan or reflections from the article uh well one thing like i said i think getting your good coalition and trying to get those people involved early on 
is helpful, but then I think there's other things that you need to do to help sustain it. Um, and some of the things we talked about is reporting it as a regular item to quality and safety committees. Like, let's talk about these things that we're doing. Um, it's also acknowledging the things that you're finding and reporting on those either latent safety threats or reporting on those, you know, metrics that maybe you could move a little bit. I know there's so many other, you know, variables that impact so many of those things. Um, and also, you know, just kind of making those successes visible um, so that the organization can see continued benefit from that. I think that that uh, advice to celebrate those successes is really is important. And I know certainly in an Australian context, we're often very keen to downplay our wins and undersell ourselves. And I, I do think there's a discrete skill set in actually being able to own those successes, trumpet them well, in order to not necessarily inflate our own egos, but to ensure that our program is embraced and embedded within the organization. Fantastic. All right. Well, again, just to sort of recap for our simulcast listeners, go to that table one and have a look. Lots of practical stuff in there. Uh, and then if you are interested in the, you know, where it came from, uh, the authors have very kindly included two supplementary files. One is their descriptions that, from which they drew their uh, narrative, which they entered into their narratives. And then the second is their uh, thematic analysis uh, process. So that's, uh, again, for the people who are interested in the process, that's a really nicely well set out. So what do the authors conclude, and I'm going to read the first uh, sentence, failing to play the long game in simulation program initiation is the norm rather than the exception. Uh, focusing on short-term gains, putting out fires and focusing on the urgent at the expense of the important sets simulation program leaders up for frustration and even burnout. Uh, and I like how you've created your own sense of urgency in your conclusion. And then you go into a bit more detail and then you say, we encourage those who are developing new ISS programs or expanding current programs to experiment with a longitudinal pre-briefing. Uh, and I couldn't agree more. My take home from this was to uh, think about the long game. It actually sits rather nicely with my own personal experience knowing that uh, sometimes failures were just successes waiting to happen they just hadn't occurred at the right time or with the right people so I think uh, it's easy to ignore that when you're starting up and you want something to be a success right away but the long game is uh, is a really good thing to take from here Ben what sort of was your if you had to sort of think about your take-home messages what might they be I think for me this is uh, a a great paper to just highlight that this stuff is actually really hard. Uh, if you're sitting in a small hospital really trying hard to get an insight to program uh, going and feeling the heat and the frustration, I think this is a nice demonstration of breaking down those steps into something that's more achievable, exposing some of our blind spots uh, that we might not have considered, particularly if we don't put our organizational change hat on and we're stuck in that educational hat. Uh, and in essence, really a lovely case example of thinking about implementation versus intervention failure and how to do it well. So thanks so much, Susan. Mm, that could be another whole podcast in itself. <laughs> well, there are our take-home messages. Uh, hopefully that's more or less what you're hoping people might have taken away, Susan. Uh, any kind of final reflections for you? Did you have some other take-homes and where to from here? I think my take-homes were is even though I had done this before in the past, having the opportunity to, uh, you know, write this paper with these amazing authors made me um, 
more conscious of it. And so like, if we, I just had people come to me, you know, like a couple months ago, they said, Oh, we want to start this insight you program. And here's what we want to do. And so this time, instead of aha, I had to, you know, retrospect escape that I use cutters. It's like, let's talk about the steps that you need to take in order to be successful. And here's the things that I want you to do. And so it has made me, even though I probably did it before, it's made me much more deliberate about how to do this. And I think it's all the other um, kind of pearls that I've learned from some of my other authors, like, you know, um, uh, Komal talks about the go and no go considerations about when do you stop this, you know, and it's like, um, Jenny's got the thing about, oh, if there's no problem, there's no program. It's like, you know, we don't want to do this if there's not this compelling need, like, what is the sense of urgency? And so I think sometimes people say we want to do some, you know, this insight you program, because it's cool. What, what are you trying to do it for and why? And so I think it's really, um, made me kind of think even more deliberately and, and purposefully about how we're uh, implementing these programs and why, and maybe there's times when they shouldn't be. Hmm. Who'd have thought? Reflective practice. How about that? Uh, signposting, making things explicit to ourselves. I love that, Susan. Thank you. All right, well, Simulcast listeners, uh, it's been such a journey. Just a reminder about the paper itself. This is called Leading Change in Practice, How Longitudinal Pre-Briefing Nurtures and Sustains in Situ Simulation Programs by Susan Ella, Jenny Rudolph, Stephanie Barwick, Sarah Janssens and Komal Bajaj, published this year in Advances in Simulation, are free and open access. Well, well, it's been a great conversation. Looking forward to hearing many more stories uh, about both the ISS programs and all your work. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been lovely. And thank you, Ben. Always a pleasure to uh, have a wingman. Oh, absolutely, especially when Susan's around. All right. (laughs) This is Vic, Ben and Susan signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. 